And so one day I'm chasing Elroy around the house and I, and I'm trying to find out what he's chewing because that's what you do when you have a dog. What is that? What is that? What are you chewing? What are you chewing? And I'm laughing. And I think that's how God watches me. He just what I'm his puppy. He just goes, what is she doing? And I love that idea that I'm God's puppy. And then one day it flipped on me and I thought, huh, well, if God's job is to take care of me like I take care of Elroy Jebediah Boo Boo Kelly, what's Elroy's job? And I start thinking about what Elroy's job is, and Elroy's job is just to love me to death. It's to wake up really excited to get to spend time. Am I that excited when I wake up every morning and think I get to, I get to keep my appointment with God? I get to pray and I get to listen to see what we're going to do. I get to ask what my assignment is and where we're going. I'll go anywhere. I do not care. Just tell me we're getting in the truck and I'm going. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from... Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of Jennifer HK. And you are in for a treat on this here episode number 324. You are going to hear so much more from Jennifer in un momento. But first things first. This here episode is brought to you by, this episode is made possible by Linda and Brad and Idaliza. And what you may ask, did Linda and Brad and Idaliza do? Well, they went to our little, our humble little website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Linda and Brad and Idaliza. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. So, you know, I started to uh, begin this episode by saying, okay, so here's what happened. My friend Curry, who is proficient in the language of Espanol, uh, sent me a text right before I started this. And he said, uh, what's up, Vato? And so I said, what does that mean? What does Vato mean? He says, it's like saying, you know, hey, what's up, man? Or, you know, what's up, dude? Or whatever the case may be. But then I thought, well, wait a second. If I say, what's up, Vato? Would I have to say, what's up, 
Vato and Vatas. Uh, I don't really know how that works, so I decided to not not start it with not start it by saying that at the beginning of this episode because you know I always want to be spot on <laughs> with my Espanol skills. Uh, what do I have to talk? Oh yeah, I uh, for those of you who do not know this yet. We're going to have another big shin dig. Oh, by the way, this is right before New Year's that I, this one's going to be released. So uh, let me say, first of all, prospero año to all you out there uh, on the going from 2023 to 2024. And um, happy New Year. And if I knew some sort of other language in which I could say a happy New Year, I would do that. But th- that's all I know at this particular moment. Maybe. Uh, I'll be more proficient at other languages uh, going on into 2024. And by the time we hit 2025, I'll be able to say it in many languages. But nonetheless, you know, because we get heard, we actually get heard in like uh, 200 different countries. Now, I cannot say Happy New Year in 200 different country languages, but maybe I could pick up one or two more. But nonetheless, we are going to have another big shin dig. What do I mean by that? Well, on January 12th, uh, 2024, here in the North Texas area. By the way, if you want some more details on this, go to soberspeak.com, click on the events tab, and you'll have all the information there. We're going to have it live in person. Uh, we are going to have Cliff G and Lori G. Cliff G from the uh, AA side of things and Lori G. Both of these individuals have been on the pod in the past. Lori G from the Al-Anon side of things, they're going to be there and they're going to do a, a session called The Family Afterward. Uh, and we're looking so forward to having them. Now, I'll record it and we'll be able to put it out on a, a, a podcast episode later. But uh, if you're in the North Texas area and you can come join us on January 12th at 6.30 p.m. at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas, we would love to see you in person. But for those of you who cannot attend but want to see it live, we're actually going to set up a Zoom Zoomy, zoom, zoom, zoom thing, right? In other words, you can watch us via Zoom in the comfort of your own bedroom, living room, wherever you happen to be. Just don't show us like, you know, what you're doing if it's, you know, like inappropriate or something like that. But nonetheless, uh, we hope that you'll be able to, oh, and for those of you in the North Texas area, guess what? We're going to have a little bit of child care. We're going to have child care there. So if you want to bring your children, we would absolutely love to see you. And I especially, we always get the alcoholics at these events, um, but I would love to see a lot of the uh, uh, Al-Anon uh, people, right? Men and women there, uh, just from, from both the, fr- from the North Texas area coming on in, we would absolutely love to see you. So what else do I have to say about that? I think that's about it. Now on to Miss Jennifer HK. This is, I was fortunate enough to be able to record this, the uh, Tri-Cities group. 
uh, invites me in and allows me to record the speakers for these events. And uh, uh, Jennifer uh, was absolutely fantastic. Uh, everybody uh, just so much enjoyed her. Anyway, Jennifer is from Plano, Texas, and this one's called I'm God's Puppy. And you'll see what I mean toward the end of the episode, exactly what, why we're calling it that. Uh, like I said, you're in for a treat. You know, I, I, I thought about this when I was recording Jennifer, and there used to be a billboard on the highways and byways of America. I hadn't seen them as much lately, but it used to say, we laughed we cried, and then we ate dinner. And these billboards were promoting dinner theaters, right? So, you know, they were trying to get you in there. Well, um, I was thinking as I was recording her, and by the way, there were a lot of people who went out to uh, dinner after this event. I didn't go. I'm kind of a, I don't know, introvert or whatever. I know it's kind of hard to believe, but nonetheless, uh, but there were a lot of people who went out to eat after this. So maybe we should start saying at these events, and maybe we should put billboards up and say, we laughed, we cried, and then we ate dinner. I mean, who's with me, right? But that's what I was thinking of while I was recording Jennifer, because she took me uh, on a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, as she says, as Jennifer, as Jennifer says, uh, come along for the ride. We're going to hop on a, bi a bipolar roller coaster. <laughs> so, and it is. It goes up and down. So Jennifer talks about her time as a, a hippie chick. Uh, she talks about how she was a, a, a self-proclaimed hillbilly homecoming queen. <laughs> A hillbilly homecoming queen. She talks about how alcoholic women ought to get <laughs> patches for various uh, escapades that they participate in. Uh, she talks about evil sock puppets and what that is. Um, she says she has a head like an Etch-A-Sketch, and I'll let her explain that. Uh, she references her home bar and how she is like God's puppy. Uh, and you got to hear the analogy there. And much, much more, ladies and gents. Without further ado, I present to you Ms. Jennifer H.K. from Plano, Texas. Uh, enjoy, enjoy, Jennifer. Hi, y'all. My name is Jennifer Huddleston Kelly, and I am an alcoholic. I've been kept sober since December 5th of 92, and that's my miracle. And the Frisco group is my home group. It's an honor and a privilege to get to be here and to share my experience, strength, and hope tonight. But I am freaking nervous. I know. And I don't, that's not normal. I talk a lot. Like, I talk a lot. But it occurred to me on, my, on the way here that I talk to people that I don't have to see again. And um, there's a certain freedom in that, or I'm not going to see again for a while. There's a certain freedom in that, but I hope to see y'all all again, and uh, and I care what you think, and I need to make some friends. I'm terrible at it. I'm really awful at it, I, and it's embarrassing to admit that at 30 years. I need friends, y'all. So anyway, just a shout out for friendship in general. <laughs> it's kind of how I got boyfriends, too. Like, I just, I just need a guy. We got a guy anywhere. Anyway, I don't, I don't. Uh but there certainly was a time. Anyway, um, 
So you've already got a feel for how this is going to go. Buckle up. Wow, we're just going to ride the bipolar coaster the whole way tonight. I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, and I'm not very good at in, a, in a general way. <laughs> I'm an oversharer, and we just go wherever the thoughts go, which is very dangerous. So I always start in the same place. I was born at a very early age on November 16th of 1966. For you Revelations fans, my birth date is 111666. And that should have been, yeah, it should have been a clue for Tom and Charlotte what they were getting into. Um, I was born into a family that didn't drink. Uh, my, my mom and my dad are the kind of people that they met, they dated, they got married, and they had sex in that order. And in that order is very important in my family. And, um, and drinking wasn't good or bad at my house. It just wasn't at my house. It just, it just wasn't something they did. And so I didn't grow up having been admonished about anything or warned against it. It just wasn't how my parents lived. My parents went to work and they went to church and they did the right thing, even when nobody was looking. They were so freaking boring. God, they were boring. I mean, there was just no charges. Uh, nobody just did anything exciting at all. And, um, and I was happy and healthy and wanted and loved for about three whole years. And, uh, and then they brought home a bouncing baby resentment. And, uh, and she ruined everything. Y'all got a sister like that, too? Uh, man, she wrecked it. My first drug of choice was attention. And, uh, and homegirl started interfering with my attention. And I wanted her sent back to wherever it was she came from. A feeling which can come back at any given Thanksgiving. And, um, my sister ruined everything. And she even ruined my opportunity to blame my alcoholism on my upbringing because we went to the same schools. We went to the same church. We were potty trained in basically the same way. And, uh, and yet we turned out just a smidge different. <laughs> uh, she went to high school and graduated. She went to college and graduated in four flipping years. I mean, that's just show offy if you ask me. I'm 56 or 57. I've lied about my age so long. I don't know how long, how old I am. But see, I round up. I don't round down. I round up so that I don't, I'm not traumatized by the number. But now I don't know the number unless I do math. So anyway, I, the whole point being, uh, I'm a sophomore. Uh, been a sophomore for a minute, uh, decades and decades. And uh, when my little sister graduated from college, she chose a career. She went to go work for Jesus in Bulgaria. She was a missionary. <laughs> I was a cocktail waitress in a pool hall. <laughs> so we were both doing God's work in our own way for the poor and the downtrodden. I was just bringing them home with me. And she was giving them Jesus comic books. Um and while my sister was in Bulgaria, she met a Bulgarian man. They met the day that they got married and they had sex in that order. <laughs> I married Big Daddy 14 years ago this coming week. And uh, I was not a virgin. So one of these things just doesn't belong here. And, uh, and I always like to explain, just in case there's somebody new in the room, that I always thought we told this part of our story to explain why we're alcoholic. And I, that's really not it. Because I'm alcoholic pretty much exclusively because of alcohol. It's real hard to make one without it. And um, 
we tell this part of the story just so that we can connect, so that we can relate. Uh, I don't want a solution for a problem I can't admit I have. And each of these little details, if you go, oh, yeah, me too, or I thought that way, or I never thought of it that way, but I will now, then you're probably one of us. But um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm growing up in this family. Uh, actually, my dad was a football coach in Prosper back when Prosper was a greasy little spot in the road, back when they gave you a little crappy little house to live in to go to Prosper to be the football coach. It was cold. That's all I remember is it was not a well-insulated little home. And um, and we went to church every time the doors were open. Church was a way you lived. It was not a thing you talked about. It was the way that you lived. And um, and my parents were, were good and solid parents. But I'm an alcoholic because when I put alcohol in my body, I cannot predict what's going to happen. Uh alcohol gets to choose. It's just spin the wheel, and that doesn't happen to nine out of ten drinkers. Um, that is covered in masterly detail in the doctor's opinion, which I highly recommend you read with someone who has read it before, because I sat in Alcoholics Anonymous for over a year saying I was an alcoholic, believing I was an alcoholic, but not knowing what being an alcoholic really meant. Because there's some misinformation. I know this is weird, but sometimes you sit in an AA meeting, you hear some squirrely stuff. Like somebody with nine years saying, I had, the craving was on me today. How did you manage that? Can't get the craving without the alcohol. So I needed somebody to kind of explain some stuff to me. And, um, but I digress. So growing up in this family, and I needed to drink really early on because for the most part, I grew up on the mean streets of Plano. I'm East Side. I'm East Side. I'm pretty gangster. And, uh, And uh, my uh, my story begins with a boy. I have always liked boys. I don't care what you heard. I like them a lot, uh, and I scared the fish. I hit puberty in about third grade, and boys discovered me in 2007. So most of my life's pretty much a wily e. Coyote episode where I'm chasing something that does not want to get caught. And so my story begins with a boy. Um, he walked into the first Methodist church, and I wanted what he had, and I was willing to go to almost any lengths to get it. I like church, by the way. There's a lot of attention to get there. I like church so much that I thought I'd be a minister when I grew up. <laughs> Plot twist. And... uh so I'm sitting at that first Methodist church, and I'm, uh, I've got this medical condition. I'm boy crazy. And... um and in he walks, and he had an accent, which I thought was super sexy. He was from Jackson, Mississippi, and I don't get out much, so that's exotic to me. And uh, and on the outside, he was everything I knew he'd never be. He was tanned. He was toned. He had great hair. He had a waist. Man, I've always wanted a waist. I'd have a different story if I'd had a waist. And he found me fascinating, too, and we hated the same people, and we were disillusioned by the same things, and we both loved to shoplift. So I knew we had a future, and I fell in love with him as only a 15- or 16-year-old girl could, and I got him. I decided I got to get him on lockdown. And so I come up with a plan. I decided if, if the rest of my life I'm going to be talking about sin, I probably ought to try some. 
And I decide he is going to be my introduction to sin. (laughs) Now, I don't tell him about it. Uh, Because I have found out if you tell a guy a plan, he immediately starts to try and revise the plan. And I'm not really open to input. And um, so I just decide he's going to deflower me and set out on a mission. So we go on this little date. Uh, I'm driving because I'm a helper like that. And uh, we did a little light shoplifting at Collin Creek Mall. And uh, then we headed off to this romantic bistro, Chili's. And... uh, And I found a very secluded parking lot where I prepared to make my big move. Now, I didn't really have a big move. I had just seen some Molly Ringwald movies. But I was hoping that Mother Nature might kick in. I'm pretty sure my big move had something to do with an ear and a tongue. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, So we get to this dark and secluded parking lot, and I'm preparing to make my big move. And... That's when he popped right out of the closet. Um, Yeah, he's gay. I mean, like, not a little bit. All the way gay. And um, I don't know if there's a real fun time for a guy from the South to come out of the the closet, but uh, the early 80s was not it. It was a pretty scary time to be a little gay man. And, uh, And he was scared to death to tell anybody, but he loved and trusted me. And yet... I made it all about me. I did not act or react very well surrounding any of that. I made it about what's wrong with me. And as a matter of fact, I spent the next two years trying to convince him he wasn't that gay. Because I hate to let details interfere with a really good plan. And um, he's he's still gay. I checked. Uh, I was single for a long time, y'all. I, I had to keep all my options open. Um the other thing that he is, is he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And and 10 years after prom, he came back to Dallas um, and called me. And luckily, I was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he kept saying, I don't know why I called you. And within about 10 minutes, I knew. And I got to 12-step him. And a year and a half later, I flew to Atlanta, Georgia, and gave him his one-year chip. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, it's been well over 10 years now. And he's still sober. And I love when God shows off like that. I'm convinced that God's favorite shape is a full circle. But we have to do the work, and we must be armed with facts about ourselves so that we have a message of depth and weight when when those people from our past need our help. So anyway, I got mad at him, and I got mad at God, and I got drunk at them both. I mean, if you're going to start drinking at resentment, start at the top and work your way down. And um, and so if being good doesn't get you what you want, I'm going to try being bad. Now, my friends had started drinking in middle school, and I don't know if you remember middle school drinking, but it involves a lot of nose puking and being grounded forever. And um, I could get grounded forever all by myself, so nose puking wasn't a real selling point for me, though I did like drunk boys because I thought there was some potential there. The problem is if you get them drunk enough, there's not enough to take advantage of. Um, but I didn't know that yet. Anyway, uh, but I got a little bit older, and um, and I started hanging around with an older crowd, which seems to be a theme in Alcoholics Anonymous. We always think it's because we're so mature, <laughs> which is hilarious, because I know you. We are not the most mature. Um Mostly, I can find a nerd from about a thousand miles away, and uh, and that's what it was. It was some nerds. 
They were living at home and going to the community college and singing in a pop group at the First Methodist Church. And um, and they were short one alto, and I'm a short alto. And they invited me to sing in their nerd group, and I did. And uh, and then we would, uh, after choir practice, we'd head off to this hopping bar so that they could drink chilies. And um wasn't a lot to do in the early 80s in Plano. And so... We went to Chili's, and they would order these pitchers of frozen margaritas. And um, that's how you know they weren't alcoholic. They'd drink these frozen margaritas, and after two margaritas, a miracle occurred. The nerds got personalities. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like, two margaritas in, and suddenly they can flirt and tell dirty jokes. And now, I am interested. Tell me all about drinking. Children, once upon a time, there was no Google. So if you needed information, you had to get it from your stupid friends. And I needed information about drinking. And um, so I asked question after question after question after question. And finally, just to shut me up, this friend of mine gave me two bottles of wine. It was leftover from a party, uh, which I still to this day do not understand two bottles of leftover wine from a party. But um in her defense, it was not good wine. It was a bottle of Boone's Farm Tickle Pink and a bottle of Real Sangria. And I put it in the back of my dad's Cutlass Supreme, and I drove around in springtime in Texas with that wine in the back of that car. And, uh, you know, it gets a little toasty. And I'm just saying, wine that has never seen a grape that is heated repeatedly takes on what I can only describe as a meaty quality. It, uh... It turns into something in between liquid and gummy bear. And, uh, but I was looking for the perfect place to get drunk and I found it. It was the night before a church trip and we were spending the night at Yolanda's house and Susie was there and Yolanda was fighting with her boyfriend back when phones were on walls. And, um, and Susie, my little drill teamy Susie friend, Susie was there and, oh, yay. And, um, and that's when I remember the two bottles of wine. And uh, Susie was, you know, she's a Texas Susie. She's gigantic blonde hair, naturally fabulous. She has a teeny tiny waist and gigantic pom-poms. And um, she can do the splits for no reason. Yay! And um, I don't know if you can tell, but I've had to do a little writing about girls like Susie because uh, four columns to be exact. Uh because girls like Susie say, I'm cold, and suddenly people are leaping over furniture to change the thermostat and grab blankets. Jennifer, chop some wood. Susie's cold. And I'm that girl out in the parking lot changing her own tire, you know, and I'm just, I'm just bitter. Uh, it's not till years later when I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous doing a fifth step with a sponsor that I find out why I'm that girl in the parking lot changing her own tire. You see, I'm so certain that no one ever will help that I never let them. I never tell them I need it. I'm so sure that they won't open the door that I never pause to give them the opportunity. I'm so certain that they won't ask me out that I don't hear them when they do. I'm creating my own reality with my beliefs, and I don't even know it. And off we go. So I ask Susie if she wants to get drunk, and she does. We start out closet drinkers. We sat on the floor of a closet. And we drank this wine, and um, and Susie is still one of my very best friends to this day. She is the sweetest, kindest human being you've ever met in your life. 
But we've talked a little bit about what happened that night. If you ask Susie what happened that night, she will talk about blood and vomit and urine. Just a lot of DNA. Just she will talk just a lot about DNA, hangovers, just negative, so negative. And apparently she and I had a completely different experience when, when we drank. Because for me, we laughed, we talked, we wet our pants, and we puked. And it was the best night of my life. You see, because Susie didn't even know that before we drank, I thought she was up here and I was down here. She didn't know that when I got one bottle of wine in, we were neck and neck. She didn't know that when I finished that second bottle of wine, I could take her at anything, including doing the splits. So sign me up. That's what I'm saying. Sign me up. I would like a lifetime membership to that. And um, and then, now that next morning was a different story because I'd never been drunk before. And um, I didn't really know how that worked. I had never been that thirsty in my life. Y'all remember that? Like you could go to sleep, wake up, your tongue had grown hair. It was the weirdest thing. I leaned over the bathtub, drank three or four gallons of water. And I headed downstairs. It was a special morning. And this mama had made huevos rancheros for breakfast. So I puked again. And I... uh and I got on a bus to sing for Jesus. And I was both of those things, and I loved both of those things. And my book tells me I could probably stop right here. But why? I'm having the most fun I have ever had, and I cannot wait to do it again. And that's where my drinking began. Gradually, things got worse. I... um. I went to jail before I even got out of high school because I'm an overachiever. <laughs> uh, I was the president of everything they would let me be the president of at Plano East Senior High. And uh, me and the gay boyfriend stole a street sign. And uh, we put it in the back of my dad's cullis. And uh, I kind of forgot that street signs are reflective. Y'all, the trunk wouldn't close. This was a street sign. It was not a street sign. It was a street sign. So it's hanging out the back of the trunk. And we forget it's there. Took me two years of sobriety to realize this was an alcohol-related offense. They pull us over. He immediately bursts into tears because he's peed in a park and he thinks it's a felony. And I have no idea why we've been pulling over, why we've been pulled over, because I've been doing some of that really good driving where I'm Figuring out when I'm going to stop based on the trees in the median. Like when I get to that third tree, I'm going to slow down for that light. And I would kind of forget what color the light was because I was so busy watching the tree. But anyway, um, turns out we went to prison and uh, not really. We went to jail. The Plano City Jail is scary. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's real scary. Uh, he was on one side of the cell block and I was on the other. And I was doing that really pretty crying, that, <gasps> and uh, he said, tell your mom and dad it's my fault. I said, you could bet on it, buddy. Uh, you do not have to tell a girl like me to blame you. Check. Um, now, when I did my inventory, once again, we discovered that this had me written all over it. There is no way that was not my plan. Um but I only tell you that story to tell you this when I got bailed out of jail that next morning. And I was the youth speaker at the First Methodist Church. I'm freshly out of jail. I got a curling iron burn all the way across my forehead. 
because I'm a little fritzed out from my prison experience. And I can't prove, yeah, that's what God did too. Just, <laughs> uh, this is awesome. She'll be using this story for years. Anyway, uh, I'm pretty sure that's when I stopped looking the world in the eye. And it's important for me to tell you that that had nothing to do with them. That had everything to do with me. Because when I'm not doing what I think God wants me to do, I'm not comfortable hanging out in his house. I'm better now. And uh, and so I just decide that I'm not going to hang out in God's house anymore. And problem solved, and that's off we go. Um, by the end of my drinking, there are jobs and no jobs and men and no men and utilities and no utilities. I didn't lose what other people lost while drinking because I forget to get it. Whoops. I flunked out of school in record time. I made my big geographic. I moved from Denton to Louisville. I'm not brave. I just drove over a bridge and a lake, and it's a whole new world, you know, and it's going to be totally different here. I went from being a hippie chick, which meant I had a hippie boyfriend, which meant I just gave up hygiene, and uh, and then I moved to Louisville, and I figured out my hippie chick thing wasn't going to work. I was probably going to have to buy a razor, and um uh, and I'm driving down Main Street my first day in Louisville, and I see a life-sized orange horse, and that's when I decide I'm going to be Patsy Klein. And I go to this hairdresser shop, and I say, tweezle me up some cowgirl hair. And she did. This was the 80s, late 80s, early. No, it was late 80s. Everybody was getting perms. Men, women, dogs, and chickens, we all got perms. There's bald men in this room who once upon a time had a perm. And uh, so I was getting my perm, and she gets three perm rods in, and she goes, you party, don't you? And I thought it was because of my aura. I'd been hanging out with them hippies. I did not know that beer comes out your pores. <laughs> I am not super self-aware. And uh, that homegirl offered me a beer, and we got drunk and did my hair. <laughs> and it's turning out just exactly as bad as you think. Uh, we are about 18 beers in, and that's when the perm rods came out, and I had a shrubbery sitting on top of my head. And that's when she grabbed the scissors, and by the time she was done, I had an asymmetric haircut. I had long hair on this side and short hair on this side. She twirls me around. I see three heads, and we all got bad hair. She's bobbing and weaving behind me, and she says, nobody in town has this haircut. <laughs> I'm thinking, nobody in town wants this haircut. But she asked me if I'd like to go honky-tonking, and I would. And uh, that night, I went to the Moonlighter in Lake Dallas, and... um. By the end of the night, Papa was twirling me and everything was magical. See, I'm not swimming in self-esteem, so I got to walk into those kind of bars where I know I can walk out with the gold, the silver, or the bronze. And I'm just telling you, the bronze at the Moonlighter did not have stock parts. <laughs> it's a little rough up in there. Um, but I walked in there and I was the hillbilly homecoming queen. I'm just saying, every head turned when I walked in that door. Took me 10 years of sobriety to realize my lopsided hair might have had something to do with that. But those men treated me real special. They say, sit in my lap and I'll buy you burr. And I would. And um, and by the end of the night, I'm going home with strangers. And uh, and I'm waking up with people I would not choose sober. <laughs> and um, it was a dark day, y'all, when they stopped putting the names of cowboys on the back of belts. That was really handy. You could come to in the morning and go, Good morning, Frank. And uh, do you happen to know what day it is? Uh, 
It's funny now, but it was not funny then, because I assure you I'd started out a yes, Jesus loves me kind of gal, and I'm going home with strangers, and I don't remember what I've done, but I know it didn't make Jesus happy. <laughs> um, by day, I chose a career with a hangover. I was a preschool teacher. Whoops. Yeah, it's great, uh, except for all them kids. Uh they got no boundaries and no volume control, and um, and gradually things got worse. I'd been saying no to drugs for a long time because Nancy told me to. <laughs> and then one day I said yes, and I don't identify myself as an alcoholic and anything. I'm an alcoholic and an alcoholic, but I did use other sub- substances in an effort to control and enjoy my drinking. That's how I started. I I was at a party one night. Somebody offered me something I said no to at least 100 times. I'm not exaggerating. And that night, she said, this will make you last as long as the party. I said, well, get out of my way. Why didn't nobody ever mention that? She failed to mention it would make me last three days longer than the party. I would get to be thin for a brief and shining moment, and my teeth were going to fall out my head. So... You know, life's full of trade-offs. And uh, <clears throat> and then the DEA agent showed up. And because uh, I was running around with some manufacturers and distributors, not because I'm tough or screet. I am not. I, uh, I'm thrifty. And, uh, and this DEA agent showed up. And thank goodness I'm dumb because I really didn't know what all they were doing. I knew they always had that stuff. And that's all I knew. And they said, well, if you keep hanging around with those people, when we take them to jail, you will go too. And I said, okie dokie. And I was clean in 24 hours. I did not need a sponsor. I did not need four columns. I did not need a stiff metal chair. <laughs> Nothing. I was clean. Boom. Did not touch that stuff again. And let me just tell you something. You give that up cold turkey, you don't have to explain it to people. I put on 100 pounds in like 72 hours. It was Freaking impressive. Homie was eating in blackouts. They were like, whoa, she is not doing that anymore. Uh, So that stuff never gave me half the trouble that drinking gave me. And yet I could not think about quitting drinking. I'd already gotten a DWR, maybe two. I mean, the first one I figured I got just because, you know, I'm a party girl and all party girls get one. I mean, that's just part of being a party girl. I think alcoholic women ought to get patches like the Girl Scouts. <laughs> so I got my little DWI patch, you know, and like if you've ever had to take a guy home from the bar and put his bicycle in the back of your car, you get, <laughs> you get your transportation patch. And uh, I can do two hours of this. Uh, if you've ever gone home with a guy and, he, and you wake up and he's got less limbs than you remember him having the night before that's a true story you get your prosthesis patch and uh you'd think you'd remember that kind of thing not necessarily and uh so i got my dwi patch and uh hired me an attorney he worked out of his garage and um look we preschool teachers were not making bank and uh And after telling this guy my tale of woe, he said, "Uh, when they pull you over again, here's what I want you to do. I thought that was real weird because I already got my patch. I don't need two. And um, 
It occurred to me on my way back to my apartment that I hadn't explained to him that I had a plan. I was going to be more careful. See, alcoholics think that's a solid plan. The Al-Anon start laughing immediately. Um, The problem with the be more careful plan is I drink the no care juice. And uh, which makes me constitutionally incapable of being more careful. Alcoholics go, be more careful. Solid plan. Roll with that. And um, so less than six months later, I get my second DWI. And that's when I know I've got a problem. For sure and for certain, I've got a problem. It's a driving problem. I set out to solve the... I'm a, I'm a big thinker. And uh, set out to solve my di- driving problem. I moved next door to my bar choice, Daddy Rabbit's Pub and... In Flower Mound, there's a couple of apartment complexes right there. I moved in there. Problem solved. Problem solved. Only wherever I go, there I am. And I've got alcoholism. And it's progressive. And it's fatal. And I don't even know that I have it. And whether I'm being more careful or living closer to the bar, whether I'm trying or not, the needed power is not there. At this point in my life, I'm going home with strangers so I can continue to drink. And it's not until I'm sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and going through the big book with a sponsor that I find out why I did that. I never kept alcohol in my home. And the reason was when I was 19 years old, right at the beginning of my story, one of my friends from high school was going to North Texas with me. And um, he was dating my very best friend. He got drunk at a party. He uh fell asleep on his back, passed out on his back, and he asphyxiated on his own vomit. And I went to his funeral. It was the last funeral I went to until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was freaking tragic. His mother was shattered. These people were not okay. It was awful. He was 19 years old and tremendously talented and one of the kindest men I've ever met in my whole life. And he died because he drank too much at a party. And I would have been offended if you'd called me an alcoholic at that point in time, and yet I knew sitting in that church service that that kind of thing could happen to somebody like me. And so my solution was not to drink at home and not to drink alone. But what that meant was that at the end of the night, I was going home with anybody who would take me. I was turning my will and my life over to the care of anyone who would take me because I needed to continue to drink. And if you do that, some things begin to happen that you don't like. They put some dirty on you that soap doesn't wash off. And it's a big deal the first time it happens, and it's a pretty big deal the second time it happens. But by the third time, I just change up the story I tell myself. That's the kind of alcoholic I am. And when I read the book Alcoholics Anonymous by myself before I came to my very first meeting, there was a part of the book that said that with a sufficient reason, a normal drinker or heavy drinker can stop or moderate I thought about those things that began to happen when I was going home with strangers. And I thought to myself, that seems like it would be a sufficient reason. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. And I drink for oblivion. It's one of the very first words I looked up when I read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the definition I found for oblivion was to seek to forget or to be forgotten. Isn't that alcoholism in a nutshell? To seek to forget or to be forgotten. And gradually things got worse. As I said, there were jobs and no jobs and men and no men and utilities and no utilities. I just, I truly believed that if I could just get married and have one of those babies, if I had something that depended on me and loved me enough, 
then surely I wouldn't be doing the stuff that I was doing. And so I, I'm going to those bars not because I need to get drunk. I'm going because I need to meet him. And you know that's where all the eligible bachelors are. <laughs> one night stand after one night stand after one night stand after one night stand. And now I can't really hang on to those daycare jobs because they get kind of rigid about wanting you to be there every day, fully clothed, ready to function. I mean, they're kind of rigid about that whole thing. And uh, so I would I would work at the daycare, and right before they were about to fire me, I'd quit and I'd go work at the pool hall. And then right when they were kind of going to fire me because I have a hard time sh- showing up at all if you let me drink all day. And uh, so then I'd go back to the daycare and I'd eat some fish sticks and drink some juice and sing some songs about animals. And I'd wind up back in that trouble because I can't show up in the morning. And gradually things got worse. On November 19th of 1992, by that time I've moved back home with my parents. I'd gotten engaged to a guy who was a he he had some staying power. He uh, he had an alcoholic mama, so he'd been through boot camp. <laughs> and um, the stuff that we did seemed normal to him. But it wasn't normal. It was violent. It was vile. The way that we talked to each other, no, that's not true. The way that I talked to him, the way that I treated him. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have told you that he abandoned me. And I would have made sure that you knew that he hit me because that was a real important part of my story. I'm so thankful to the women in Alcoholics Anonymous who were honest about themselves so that I can be honest about myself. Because if I'm not honest about myself, I'm going to drink behind it. And those women started talking about the 30 minutes before they got hit. So I'll tell you about the 30 minutes before I got hit. He was passed out. He was passed out. Me and the evil sock puppets, we were up. And we were evaluating our relationship. Some people call that the committee. I like to call them the evil sock puppets because I don't want it to sound like they are working in an official capacity. So me and the sock puppets are up evaluating the relationship. And at some point, we decide to invite him into the conversation. And so we delicately kick him in the head or something and say, get up, you know, and he, bless his heart, he had PTSD before we knew what that was. So he'd wake up going, what'd I do? I swear, that's true. And uh, and then we'd start to fight. And I would get him up against the wall, and I would put my fingernails in his chest, and I would twist, and I would say something loving like, you want to hit me, don't you? And if you say it long enough and loud enough, they'll take suggestions. And he'd hit me, and I'd tell him to get out, because that was my apartment that my parents were paying for. And uh, and he'd leave. And that wasn't what he was supposed to do. That had that was nowhere in the script, so I'd have to follow him, you know. And he's going down three flights of stairs, because that's where alcoholics live. We live on the third floor, and uh, I've thrown all his clothes off the balcony, because I like the way that looks, and... And I'm chasing him around the parking lot, you know, and I'm saying, you're not taking my car. Because, see, I like to date a guy with no job and no car. Because when you drop him off somewhere, he's still there later. And uh, and he's got nothing left to say to me, and he's still walking, and I'm following him, and I'm screaming those things that I was never, ever going to say. I'm talking about his mother, which I swore to him I would never, ever do till I was mad. 
And then I start getting this panic feeling because it feels like he's the only thing that keeps me tied to the planet. And I think that terror is love. And I say, get back in there. And he goes, okay. You know, all he wanted to do was pass out. He didn't want to fight with me. He didn't want to do this whole thing. It was all me. And then I'd go out there and I'd pick up all those clothes and I'd carry them up three flights of stairs and I'd put them back on the hanger so we could play the game again next week. See, our neighbors caught on to doing the same things, expecting different results, but we didn't. It was a new game every time we played it. I've got a head like an Etch-a-Sketch. You shake it twice and there's nothing there. I've got a head like an Etch-a-Sketch. You shake it twice and I've forgotten the suffering and the humiliation of a week or a month ago. I am without defense against first strength, and I don't know that it's the first strength that's killing me. And gradually things got worse. So I moved back home with my parents after he went into the Navy to get away from me, and I forgot what a jerk he was, and he forgot what a jerk I was, and we got engaged and fought ship to shore. But we couldn't seem to manage to make it down the aisle. I keep doing divorces before the weddings. And uh, he kept getting thrown into the brig, and I kept forgetting to be faithful. I'm, uh, I'm not promiscuous. I just sleep with a lot of people. Uh <laughs> And I wish it was lust. I would brag about it if it was lust, but it wasn't. It was a little more transactional than that. As I said, I didn't have alcohol in my home. And so I traded myself for a couple of beers. That's the value that I had. And I hate telling that part of my story. I can feel the shame. I don't know when that goes away. Maybe year 31. I hate that that's how I felt. Of hate that I did not value who I am, what I am, or what I bring to a relationship any more than that. But that's what alcoholism does to a drunk like me. And so I'm living with my parents, and I'm still drinking in Flower Mound, living in East Plano, still drinking in Flower Mound, because that's where my home bar is. And, uh, and one night I'm driving home drunk like I do every single night of my life, and that night a cop car gets behind me, and I know it's a felony DWI. And the cop pulls me over. I'm driving through three different counties, and I was, I guess I was in Dallas County at that point. And, and he asked me how much I'd had to drink, and everybody in this room knows the correct answer to this. Exactly. It's two and only two. Come on, y'all. And I knew that answer, too. And yet that night, I said $67 worth. <laughs> And I looked around to see who had said that, because children, we were not drinking $12 cocktails in 1992. I was drinking draft beer and shots, unless you were buying. And, uh, And I accidentally told the truth. And that cop asked me to get out of the car, and I said, look, I know I'm drunk, and you know I'm drunk. How about we do the pen thing, and you just take me to jail? And he said, that sounds like a great idea. I was his most agreeable customer that night, and uh, and I had a moment of clarity sitting in a jail cell, and my moment of clarity was that I saw myself exactly as I was in that moment. I could no longer say, what's a nice girl like me doing in a place like this, because I knew there was no confusion. I was no longer a nice girl. And I knew I needed to stop doing what I was doing, but I knew if they let me out, I'd do it again. It's a safe bet that I will do it again. No matter how great the necessity or the wish, the needed power is not there. I will do it again. And I said a prayer, and I asked God for help, and I made a decision that I would go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I meant it right up until they let me out. (laughs) 
Because, see, sitting in jail, meetings don't seem like such a bad idea. But they let me out, and I was in a lot of trouble. Um, By then, I was the assistant director of a daycare. And I had kind of forgot to open the daycare because I was locked in jail. I still don't remember the lie. I told them about where I had been and why I hadn't unlocked the daycare, but they noticed. I'm just saying when a bunch of parents and little children is sitting in the parking lot (laughs) and nobody's there to let them in the building, it's kind of noticeable. And um, so I'm in that kind of trouble. I'm also living with Tom and Charlotte and every. Every attorney in Dallas is sending me mail <laughs> wanting to represent me, um, and, and uh, they notice that. I mean, like, I'm trying to get to the mailbox faster than mom and dad, but attention to detail has never been my strong suit, and uh, and my car was in the impound. I mean, I got to rehire the garage attorney. I mean, it's so, it's a lot, and, um, and this attorney is telling me, that um, best case scenario, I'm going to do a year in jail. And I know looking at me, you're thinking, oh, she's hard. She can do that anytime. She, Nope, I am not good at jail. I am good at air conditioning and carbs. And uh, I, I like um, TV and uh, solitude, really. Um, I am terrible at jail. I, like I'm not, my weapon of choice is projectile weeping. And uh, I can't play spades because there's all, everybody got different rules and I don't ask questions. Domino's has way too much math and, um, and there's get girls in there. Whew, they, they're there on purpose and uh, I am not. And when he told me I was going to do a year in jail, I started getting suicidal-ish. As a matter of fact, it got so bad, I started driving around to AA group. I didn't go in, but I sh- I sure drove around it. Uh, I didn't need a meeting schedule because I knew when the people with the styrofoam cups went in, and I knew when the people with styrofoam cup- cups came out. And I got drunk one more time. I got drunk one more time. I was reading the book by myself, and I couldn't find a solution reading the book by myself. I didn't have a drink, and I was suicidal. And I went to a bar. I had no intention of drinking that night. Um, I was just going to talk to a criminal about my legal problems, and um, and I sat down at that bar and and I talked to that criminal, and he seemed to think that this was an opportunity for me to find a new way to live. And I could have kicked him right in the baby maker, <laughs> like this guy had eight DWIs, and um, and he's still drinking at a bar, and I got three DWIs, and he's twelve stepping me, and I'm offended. And yet there's a little voice inside of me that sounds like me that isn't me that said, who would know better than Jimmy? Jimmy knows how you think, and he knows how you feel, and he knows how you drink. Jimmy knows. The other thing that happened that night was that at some point there were drinks in front of me, and at some point I drank them, and I didn't decide to drink. I had decided not to. There was a really good reason for me not to drink that night. I still had charges pending, and they were big, and I was in trouble and I drank. And I didn't realize it until I looked down and saw the empty glasses. I swear to you, I don't remember deciding to drink. I remember deciding not to. I drank against my will. And I've been telling that story for 30 years, and I get chills every single time I talk about it, because I'll drink against my will. And it terrified me. 
And that's when I showed up at the Plano group. I drove uh, around that group for as long as I could stand it. And one day I reached what they call the jumping off place where I can no longer imagine life with or without alcohol. I went to the Plano group back when it was in the little greenhouse at the corner of Jupiter and Parker. <laughs> Man, that place was thumping. Everybody was smoking. The guy in the oxygen tank was smoking. The Plano group was the kind of group where furniture goes to die. When grandma says, get rid of that couch, they take it to the Plano group, and it's got every kind of DNA on it, no demand. And I walked into a late meeting, and they turned out the lights, and they lit the candles, and I knew I was in a cult. But it just didn't matter because I had nowhere else to go. I sat where the newcomer likes to sit, which is as close to the door as humanly possible. They were sitting down at the other end of the room. I make it sound like it was monstrous. It was not. It was about the size of this stage. But um, but I was sitting at the other end of the room because I didn't know if I could make it through a whole meeting. I didn't know when the voice in my head was going to say, we got to go. And I certainly didn't want to be tripping over y'all when I went. But right before the meeting started, somebody said, hey, there's a chair right here. Why don't you come sit with us? And I truly believe that my recovery began when I gave up my idea and I started trying yours. I believe my recovery began when I took that long walk from the couch by the door and joined the circle of Alcoholics Anonymous because I haven't had a drink since. Now, I've had to do a couple of things to keep that chair. And there have certainly been times when it was only God's grace that kept me sober. It was not my actions or my virtue. It was God's grace. But I believe everything began when I started trying your ideas. And I'm sitting in that chair, and I don't understand anything you're talking about. I haven't been to treatment. I've been reading the book by myself, and I don't know if y'all remember that. <laughs> but it don't make a lot of sense. There's stuff in there, and this says, this is the great news. I'm like, where? I can't find it. Jaywalker, what the what? Boiled as an owl. What are they even talking about? And um, But I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're saying. You're talking about sponsorship and the big book picnic and the three legacies and whatever. You sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. I don't know what you're saying. And the parts I do understand don't sound that great to me. And finally, a guy who knows how to talk to newcomers began to share, and he said, I didn't know as an alcoholic. Hell, I just thought I was thirsty. I'm like, me too, man. <laughs> me too. First guy in here makes sense. He's wearing bib overalls, which matters to no one but me, but I love me some overalls. I believe when we get to heaven, God's going to give us overalls and wings and some kolaches from West, and we're going to do some arts and crafts. It's I've been thinking a lot about heaven. Anyway, uh. My mama died last year, so I've been planning our fun activities. Um, but Gene was wearing those overalls, and he had a camo fishing cap, and he had a ZZ Top beard, and, um, and I understood what he was saying. He said, my problem is the more I drink, the thirstier I get, and it begins with the very first drink. The more I drink, the thirstier I get, and it begins with the very first drink. From that day to this, that's the most elegant way I've ever heard the phenomenon of craving described. And it solved for me this mystery that I've been working on for 10 years. See, I'm a bar drinker. And I walk into a bar and I watch other people drink. And some mooks have one drink, maybe two. They look at their watch. The watch says, go home. They go home. I know because I followed them. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. One drink, maybe two. Oh, look at the time. I got to go. Mama's got dinner waiting on us. Why would you do that? We have pretzels here. Why would you do it? 
Somebody else, oh, look at the time. Look at the time. The game's about to start. And that's when I turn into the flight attendant. We have TVs here, here, and here. Why would you do that? But my question changed from why do you do that to how do you do that? And Jean explained why. The more I drink, the thirstier I get. And it begins with the very first drink. So the whole ball game for a drunk like me is how not to pick up that first drink. And I learned the secret in my very first meeting, though I didn't know that's what I was hearing. He said that he got a spiritual advisor. And that spiritual advisor is called a sponsor. And he said when he got that sponsor, that sponsor helped him take 12 principles and apply them to his life. He said somewhere in those, those 12 principles, he developed a relationship with a power greater than himself. He said he chose his power as God, but he said we could call it anything we wanted and we could choose our own conception. And he said once he developed a relationship with that power, that he hadn't had to pick up that first drink, and he said he hadn't been thirsty in a really long time, and I wanted what that guy had. And without realizing it, that night I was willing to go to any lengths to get it because I went and picked up a desire chip. And at the end of the meeting, they gave me a packet and they gave me hugs. You know, they asked me if I'd like to share and I haven't shut up since. I'm the reason people don't say, do we have a burning desire? Because I always do. And um, But that night, you know, it seemed like everybody in the meeting was an ANDA. And I told you I didn't think I was an ANDA because I only knew of two 12-step programs. I currently qualify for about 13 12-step programs. But I only knew it too, and y'all all seemed to be Andas, and I wasn't. And it scared me. I wanted to fit in AA. So when I finally introduced myself, I said, my name is Jennifer, and I'm an alcoholic and a thief, a whore, and a liar. I didn't know that once you said alcoholic, you pretty much got the rest of that covered. It's really not necessary to be that specific. Um, but I told you a little bit how I'd been dying one day at a time, and I told you a little bit about what I was ashamed of, and I told you the thing I was most ashamed of was that I knew I could never get or stay sober by myself. And you smiled and you nodded. I thought you should at least weep with me, but you smiled and you nodded. Because in AA, you can fool the fans, but you can't fool the players. And that night, I was desperate enough to be a player in Alcoholics Anonymous. So they gave me that desire chip, and they gave me that packet, and they told me to go to Denny's. I, they didn't ask me. We do not ask the newcomer to do anything because the newcomer has a very busy brain. And if you had asked me to go to Denny's, I would have gone, oh, 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 I mean, look at the time. It's a, I mean, I've got the board meeting in the morning. And uh, you told me to go to Denny's and I went to Denny's. And I remember what I thought on the way to Denny's. I thought this must be where you fill out the per paperwork to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not do any paperwork that night, but I do think I went to AA orientation because I learned some stuff about y'all. I learned that you laugh at things that are not funny. You share things you should not share, especially not in public. I don't know why they call us anonymous because you've got no volume control. And you say stuff like, isn't that just like an alcoholic? <laughs> oh, my God, it's horrible. And yet what I saw there is what I see here, a fellowship of friendliness and understanding that is indescribably wonderful. And it was so attractive, I went home and I prayed to a God that I knew had given up on me. But that's what you told me to do when I did it. And you told me to get a sponsor. Get a sponsor, get a sponsor. Come to the women's meeting, come to the women's meeting. Get a sponsor, get a sponsor. I mean, you either got to drink or do this stuff. They will peck you to death in here. 
And I went to the freaking women's meeting and I got a sponsor and and I picked my sponsor because she was a nice lady. And I thought that was the most I could ever ask of Alcoholics Anonymous was that someday maybe I could be a nice lady. Because <laughs> I'd give them away compromised or never had what it took to be a nice lady. And I did what that lady told me how to do. She hadn't worked the steps out of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it didn't matter. I did what she told me to do and I stayed sober. She didn't, but I did. And by the time we got to the ninth step, I realized that I hadn't worked all the steps and that I hadn't worked them right. And, and some things happened sober that happened like they would happen drunk. And I didn't act or react different. And I got really afraid because I thought I might drink and I didn't want to. And so I got a sponsor that worked the steps out of the book. And we worked the steps like my life depended upon it because it does. And I started to change from the inside out. And little by slow, God entered my life. <laughs> And little by slow, I began to change. And I started working with others, and that's when it got fun. That's when it got fun. I truly believe working with others is like the flippers in pinball. Man, when you start to wander off, they go... Things start lighting up, and there's noise and chaos, and it's fantastic for a drunk like me. Because I got to get out of my head. My head is out to kill me, and I've trusted it for way too long. But when I'm working with others, I'm busy. One time I tried to figure out how many times I've gone through the doctor's opinion, and I know it's over 2,000 times. And let me promise you, I don't know where most of those women are. I sponsored just a little handful. But I know where I am. I'm here. And I've been here continuously. And I believe I've been here because I needed to read the doctor's opinion 2,000 times. It's not about them. It's about me keeping my appointment with God. And when I keep my appointment with God, I show up for you. And gradually things got better. I got married and my life began to change. I married a guy I knew in high school, but he was a nice guy. What was I going to do with that? And things just got different. And we've gone through good times and we've gone through hard times. And Alcoholics Anonymous has just been the center of my life ever since. And um, last year, my mom... We were living with my mama. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, I know it was a very hard time for a whole lot of people, but God used that time to get it really, really close to me. I worked on prayer and meditation in a way that I never had before, and I spent a lot of time with my journals. And And I was Zoom meeting with some gals that I have known uh, from all over the country, and um, and I got closer to God than I've ever been because I had to be. I was living with my husband and my mother, and there was never any quiet. And uh, I was losing my mind and uh, until I learned how to still it. But last year, um, my mother was getting older, and we knew that. She lived upstairs. We lived downstairs. And we were realizing that we needed to switch positions and there were logistics to figure out on how to do that. And she fell on the stairs. And... Um, she broke her ankle in a very dead Prescott way. Uh, don't recommend that. Oof. And I knew when they put her on the gurney that she wasn't coming back home. Um, I didn't know she was going to die. Um, but I knew that it just wasn't going to work for her to come back to the house. And um, she had a lot of other problems on top of the broken ankle. And she had cirrhosis, um, non-alcoholic cirrhosis. She didn't even have any good stories to go with it. She just had a fatty liver, and um, that eventually killed her. But um, 
For seven months, she just um, got sicker and sicker. And my sister and I, who had been off and on fighting, um, we became a team because we had to become a team. And I prayed like I've never prayed before. See, most of the decisions I make, they really won't matter in six months. They're not life or death. But during that time, it felt like the decisions were life and death. And it was a really scary time. I love my mom. And I didn't want to let her go. <laughs> and yet I knew what I had to do. It was I knew it was my time to walk my mother home. And there were times when she wasn't getting the care that she needed. And I couldn't lose my temper or they would punish her. And so I had to figure out how to be graceful and gracious in a situation where the fear was telling me, raise hell. And there were times when I would come home and I would sit in my car in the driveway and I would just weep because I was so tired and so afraid. And I'd go to the mailbox and there'd be a card. And it would be from some woman in Alcoholics Anonymous who would remind me that I am not alone and that we can do hard things. And eventually we buried my mom. And our house was lonely and our house was sad. And... uh a lot of weekends, I get to travel. I get to fly out of town to go to Alcoholics Anonymous functions. My husband is terrible at mourning, and I didn't want to leave him alone because we're not sure if he belongs in one of these rooms, but maybe. And uh, and I don't like dogs. I'm just going to say it out loud. I don't like dogs. I don't like dogs. I don't like the nose in the crotch. I don't like the licking situation. I don't like the neediness. I just don't like dogs, but he needs a dog. And um, and so I said, uh, hey, um, on Saturday, let's go to the pound. The pound is full. We need to go look at a dog. And he said, we're going to look at a dog. I said, yeah, we're going to look at a dog. He said, we're just looking at a dog. We are definitely just looking at a dog. So we're on our way to the pound. And I say, stop at Pets Plus. And he said, why? And I said, well, we need a leash. He said, I thought we were just looking at a dog. I said, well, just in case. So we bought a leash and we went to go look at a dog. We went to go look at Rio. There was no chemistry with Rio. It was a perfectly fine dog. He dances in the sand. <laughs> but he just didn't do it for us. So we were going to leave with my brand new leash and no dang dog and we're walking around there, kind of looking around. I'm very disappointed that Rio and I didn't have a thing. There was this one dog that we saw on the way in. This one dog, he was real cute. He has these little tiny cropped ears. Don't do that, but they were real cute. And he was real cute. We stopped and said, that's a real cute dog. And then we walked right past him to go meet Rio. And on our way out, every volunteer at the, at the pound said, hey, did you introduce her to Elroy? And that was that cute little dog with the funny ears. And um, and we met Elroy. Then we put him on my new leash. And we took him home. And, um, and that first morning, you know, he and his daddy got up early. And I came out and he put his little paws on me when I walked out the door. And my heart just busted wide open. <laughs> And I fell in love with this dumb dog. <laughs> and the weirdest thing happened when I fell in love with my dog. I fell in love with your dogs, too. It was so weird. Like, I'm this 
ratchet person who on airplanes goes, hey, do you have a dog? I want to see a picture. Show me. Mostly, I just want to show you a picture of my dog. But I'll look at a picture of your dog. His name is Elroy Jebediah Boo Boo Kelly. Then <laughs> he's terrible. I mean, like, he does not act right. He has done a lot of time. And uh, he's got newcomer manners. Sometimes he's a total angel. And then, like, everybody comes over for Thanksgiving. He's never peed in the house before. Thanksgiving. Everybody's standing around him going, that's a fine dog. And that's when he lifted his legs and just whizzed all over the furniture. It was fantastic. And all of a sudden, I realize what those weirdos in the meeting were talking about when they said, you know, that God is dogs fell backwards. <laughs> and I would think that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, now I get it. Okay, fine. And so one day I'm chasing Elroy around the house and I and I'm trying to find out what he's chewing, because that's what you do when you have a dog. What is that? What is that? What are you chewing? What are you chewing? And I'm laughing. And I think that's how God watches me. He just what I'm his puppy. He just goes, what is she doing? What is she doing? Like, uh, she has all these toys, and I've given her carrots and broccoli and lots of lettuce. It's always cheese. She's always in the cheese. And he just laughs because he thinks I'm so cute. And I love that idea that I'm God's puppy. And then one day it flipped on me, and I thought, huh, well, if God's job is to take care of me like I take care of Elroy Jebediah Boo Boo Kelly, what's Elroy's job? And I start thinking about what Elroy's job is, and Elroy's job is just to love me to death. It's to wake up really excited to get to spend time. Am I that excited when I wake up every morning and think, I get, to, I get to keep my appointment with God. I get to pray and I get to listen to see what we're going to do. I get to ask what my assignment is and where we're going. I'll go anywhere. I do not care. Just tell me we're getting in the truck and I'm going. And my challenge lately has, to be, has been to make my relationship with God as excited as my little puppy's relationship with me is. To wake up every day as excited about this new life that I've been given. See, I just came here so that I wouldn't have to go to jail. And I wouldn't trade my life with anybody's right now. With nobody's. I am happy, joyous, and free, and there is no one I would rather be than me. So I got this dog and this husband and these sponsees. I got a sponsor. I got a job to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know who I am and what I am. And when nothing else seems to work, God tricks me. And he says, why don't you do something to try and help somebody else? Why don't you get your husband a dog? Or why don't you try and con that girl into working a step without knowing it? <laughs> or why don't you just go to that meeting you don't need to go to? And let's see what happens. And I'm living the biggest, fattest, most beautiful life I can imagine. All because God tricked me. And you loved me. And I know who I am, what I am, and whose I am. My life has meaning and purpose, and it's all your fault. I'm glad to be here, and it's a good day to be sober.
Wasn't that one lights out, folks? Uh, Jennifer HK is just fantastic. She actually tours the nation. Uh, she's what you call a, uh, uh, and I mean this in a very complimentary way, but they call them circuit speakers, right? She goes, she's traveling a lot of weekends. If you're interested in getting in touch with Jennifer or any of our other speakers, or you have any sort of comments, feel free to Give me a little uh, shout out at John, J-O-H-N, John, at SoberSpeak.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you're not following us on Instagram, please do such. We're at, at SoberSpeak, all one word. And if you're not in the super secret Facebook group that we have uh, in well, Facebook, I guess that's kind of self-explanatory, um, go to your Facebook application and look up sober speak secret group ask for admission on in there and we will get you on in we would love to have you as part of that group i think we have like i don't know uh 30 3, something like that people in there and you know what's amazing to me every once in a while we get somebody out misbehave just a little bit and we got to uh go in there and you know uh just uh, correct some folks or whatever the case may be but for the most part uh people are very congenial they're very uh pleasant with with one another and it's about the message not the personalities and uh i'm so appreciative to all you in that facebook group who um Treat each other with respect. Thank you very much. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. Rob writes in and he says, and the subject line is comments on your music episode. He says, hi, John. I just finished listening to your episode with Mary Lynn B. Yes. What a great episode. And he said, and I wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed it. I was also reminded of the song Sunday Morning Coming Down, written by Chris Christopherson and powerfully sung by Johnny Cash. The song, Better Than Any I Have Heard, portrays the feelings of life slipping away from us as our addiction steals the good things from us. The good things are as simple as our child laughing or having a Sunday dinner with family. I am moved to gratitude every time I hear it. I also have a complaint about your show. I have listened to every episode, sometimes multiple times, and I am still not cured. <laughs> Luckily, 40 years of AA have kept me sober and in remission. <clears throat> Excuse me. Luckily, 40 years of AA have kept me sober and in remission. Thanks again for your podcast. Rob R. from Scandia, Minnesota. Was so good to hear from you up in Minnesota, Mr. Rob R. And that's 40 years. Congratulations on that. And I hope you don't get cured of listening to our podcast. <laughs> and thank you very much. By the way, I did go. I was not familiar with that song. I looked up. Uh, but in just in case you're taking notes at home and you're saying, what was that song again? It's Sunday morning coming down. And, and what I found was a version where Johnny Cash was, Johnny Cash was singing it along with Chris Christopherson. And you're right. It was a fantastic song. I appreciate you writing in my friend. 
Michael writes in and Michael says, Hi, John. This is my second time to jump into AA. My first time was five years ago. Uh, and when I, when I turned 30 and I lost my grandmother and my best friend in the same quarter, both succumbed to their demons. Oh, wow. I was able to white knuckle it for three years in which I got engaged. I bought a house, got into the best shape of my life. But as happens, I thought I could do it differently this time. Within two years, I was back where I left off, only worse. After enough fights and almost losing my wife, I knew I had to change. I'm not four months sober now, and I have a great sponsor. Uh, I'm now, excuse me, I think that's I'm now four, four months sober, and I have a great sponsor who has become a great friend of mine in the process. I just listened to you, uh, to your episode about step three. And I have to admit, I feel a little stuck on step three. I enjoyed your conversation. I enjoyed the conversation and insight and will continue to press forward. I have faith that God, I have faith that if God has sought, not necessarily found at this moment, I will eventually find what I'm looking for. And I agree with that, Michael. Thank you for being my meeting between meetings and thank you for doing what you do, Michael S. Well, Michael S., God bless you, my friend. Oh, he's from the Dallas area. Yeah. Who knows? Our pals may cross pretty soon, but thank you for writing in, Michael S., and I'm glad you have a sponsor and I'm glad you're on the right track. Track. Excuse me, not trek. Anyway, thank you very much. Mo writes in. Every time I say that, I want to, I, you know, I, oh gosh, I shouldn't say this, but I, I, I think of like Larry Curley and Mo, but I, I think this one is spelled different. It, it's M-O-E, but nonetheless, I love Mo. He's a frequent listener of the program. Oh, and I got to give you a little backdrop. He sent in uh, an email and I got him in touch actually with Mr. Matthew M. And then he replied. And so this is him replying to Matthew. I thought this was a great, I hope you don't mind, Mo. I know you're replying to, you replied to all of us and I was copied. So I'm going to read it. Anyway, he says, hi, Matthew. Uh, thank you so much for dropping a line. Very gracious of you. Yes, it has been a blessing to be able to utilize the podcast as a sponsor. I have been sober for 24 years, and this is the first time I have been a sponsor because I, I did not, quote, sit down completely until about 2017. Up until then, while I stayed sober from alcohol, I just kept helicoptering around the rooms. And so let me explain what's going on here. Mo takes Matthew's uh, 12 Surrenders podcasts that are that are on Sober Speak, and he uses that to help sponsor the guys that he's sponsoring, which I think is really cool. And he says, uh, Mo goes on, now I attend, now I attend almost every day. I speak at behavioral health centers, on a regular basis and just became a secretary of my home group. All this to say, I was terrified of sponsoring. And so having you, John M., and the episodes of Sober Speak as additional tools has been a real blessing. Being able to listen to each surrender, that's what 
Matthew calls the steps, uh, surrender one, surrender two, surrender three, and having the ability to pause and discuss concepts or points that you make has really added to the depth of our dialogue. That is so cool, Mo. And he says, John has really played a huge role in my suburb in my personal sobriety life with sober speak, but your Matthew M particular episodes of the surrenders was so easy to adapt to 12 step work. My best to my best to Matthew. And again, our thanks Mo. Very cool, Mo. And if there's anybody else out there using uh, the, you know, our episodes as a kind of a, a step study guide, for lack of a better word, I would love to hear from you, John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com. All right, everybody, that is another one in the can, as we say in the business. I don't really know if a lot of people in the podcast broadcasting arena say that, but I'm going to say they do because I have heard at least one other that says that. And so now I'm just going to assume that everybody says it. And it makes me sound kind of a little bit more cool, you know, to say something like that as opposed to, hey, that's just another episode. So I'll say, hey, like, hey, that's another one in the can. Because I think back in the old days, they used to actually put recording tapes like in a, you know, a, a tin can, like a round can. You can't see me with my, my fingers going in circles. Anyway, enough out of me. Uh, keep coming back, folks. It works if you work it. Uh, I take this one week at a time. I hope to be back next week. Uh, may God bless you and keep you until then. Muchas gracias. Happy New Year. Prospero año. <laughs>